Hey, this is Steve with Life Worth Living. You know, God never wanted you to live a defeated life. God's intention from the beginning was for you to be victorious. In fact, we see it in Genesis 1, where God says that he created man to rule over all of all of creation, all of visible creation. And that has not changed. God's intention is for you to live a victorious life. And so I want you to listen to this first part of this series uh, entitled, You Can Be Victorious, Just Like David Was Victorious Over Goliath. Coach getting his team out there on the field and saying, guys, doesn't matter if we don't win. I just want you to have a good time today. You know, those kind of conversations don't happen, all right? Fighters get in there to spar, and they get in there to fight, and they get in there to win, period. They have no, they have no goal of losing. Can you imagine this, a Christian becoming a Christian and saying, it's all right if I live a defeated life. It's all right if I, if I don't win in life. It's all right if I'm just a losing Christian. Can you imagine that? The reality is that happens all the time. <laughs> Christians become Christians and they think it's okay to lose. It's okay to be depressed all the time. It's okay to be defeated. It's all right if I don't read my Bible. It's all right if I don't go to church. It's all right if I don't pray. Because you know what? It's all right if I lose. God doesn't want us to live a losing life. He doesn't want any of his children to be losers. He wants all of his children to win in life, to be victorious in life. Well, we're going to be spending the next three or four weeks on this topic of living a victorious life and living it the same way that David lived beating Goliath. You can beat your, your enemies, and I'm not talking about physical enemies. I'm not talking about people. You can win in life just like David defeated that Goliath giant. You can do it. God defines victory for us, by the way, and it's simply this. It's three words, love, faith, and hope. If you have love in your heart, if you have big, huge faith that God can do anything for you. And if you live uh, an ever hopeful life, you are a victorious Christian. Now that's a pretty easy definition to live by and a pretty easy measure to, to gauge yourself by. Do you love people like crazy? Do you love God like crazy? Well, you might say, well, my love feels a little bit so-so today, all right? You need more love. You need more victory in your life so that you can love people. How's your God confidence today? Is it really high or is it really low? God wants you to be super God confident. I didn't say self-confident. I said God confident. These are measures of your, your Christian victory. Can you imagine waking up every morning and going to bed every night with so much hope that you feel like you're about to explode? That's living a victorious life. That's living a victorious life. So it's not about whether you're rich or you're poor. See, some Christians believe, you know, if you're really a good Christian, you're going to be pretty well to do. You're going to have a lot of good things in life. Wrong. 
A lot of Christians say, you know, if you're going to be a good Christian, you're going to live poor because you're going to be giving everything away and you're not going to have much in life. Wrong. <laughs> That's not what victorious Christian living is all about. It's not about materialism, about having or not having. It's about love. It's about faith. It's about hope. It's about what's going on inside and, and rather than outside. Some Christians say, you know what? If you're a victorious Christian, you're never going to be sick. You're always going to be healthy. Wrong. <laughs> Some Christians say over here, you know what? Christians always have to be suffering. That's the way of a Christian life. It's a thorn in the flesh. Man, God is always going to have me under his thumb. Wrong. That has nothing to do with, Christian, with victorious Christian living. Victorious Christian living is what goes on inside of you. The victory of the heart. The victory of the mind. All right? The victory of the soul. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the story of David and Goliath and read it like we've never read it before. Study it like we've never studied it before. And we're going to begin to realize if God can use a pipsqueak like David and make him victorious over his giant, surely he can make me victorious over my giants as well. Surely I can live a victorious life. From this day forward, I am going to stop losing, and I am going to start winning. God wants you to win. So let's start reading here in 1 Samuel 17. And forgive me if I butcher these Hebrew words of different towns and places. I'm going to give it my best shot. But I bet you can't pronounce it any better than I can, so I'm not too worried about it. All right? Here it goes. So now the Philistines. Now, I'm going to pause here and there. The Philistines were the arch enemies of the Israelites, the Hebrews. All right? So these Philistines were constantly at war with, with Israel. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. They were coming with, with ill intentions. And they assembled at this place called Succo, <laughs> Soko in Judah. And they pitched their tents at uh, Ephesus and Damon uh, between Soko and Ezekiel, I believe. Saul and the Israelites. Now, Saul was the king of Israel, so he took his, his armies. They assembled and they camped in the valley of Elikahand. And drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill. So you can see one hill full of the Philistine army. With a little valley in between. And then the Israelites on the other hill. Now, as I mentioned, the Philistines were the enemies of Israel. They came to make war. And I want you from this point forward to begin to associate the Philistines with Satan. His evil hordes. And every, every bad intention that he has for your life. He wants to make war against you. He wants to ruin you. He wants to destroy you. He wants you to have unwanted pregnancies. He wants you to be on drugs. He wants you to be unemployed. He wants you to be depressed. He wants to destroy your life. He wants you to have suicidal thoughts. He wants you to question your sexuality. He wants, to, he wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your kids. He is coming after you, and he's going to come after you until the day you die. He is your arch enemy, and he hates you with a passion. That's how these Philistines were. They came to dominate Israel, to overthrow them. They were a real threat, as is 
Satan and evil in this world, it's a real threat. It's a, it's a dangerous thing. We have reason to humanly be worried about things because they're legitimate worries. I mean, I legitimately worry about my kids or my grandkids. I don't have any yet, thank goodness. But I legitimately worry about the, coming, the next generations coming up. What on earth are they going to go through? What are they going through today? It's a dangerous place, man. I mean, I, I think about it. I go to Walmart all the time, and there's shootings in Walmart. I could easily be in a Walmart when somebody starts going off the deep end and shooting people. It's a dangerous place, maybe more dangerous than it's ever been in the history of the world. I don't know. But you know what? The Philistines came to dominate Israel, and Satan wants to dominate your, world, your, your life. He wants to dominate you with sin, distraction, bad desires. He's a real threat and a present danger. Look at this in 1 first, in first Peter 5.8. And I'm also going to read John 10.10. 10. They're both displayed up here. It says, be alert. He's talking to you. You, be alert. You 16-year-old. You 55-year-old. You 68-year-old. You, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He wants you to have the most miserable life you could ever dare to dread. He wants you to be miserable. And he's looking for someone to just rip up and shred to pieces. We go to high school at Irvin, and we do outreaches there. At Irvin, at Andrus, anywhere you go, you hear of kids attempting to commit suicide or successfully committing suicide. I'll tell you what, the devil is trying to ruin your life even at an early age. But if it's, he'll go ahead, he'll, he'll ruin your life at a late age. He doesn't care when it happens. He wants you to be miserable and to have a ruined life. John 10.10, 10, the thief, referring to the enemy, once again, comes to steal. He wants to steal what God has given you. Do you ever get to the place where you don't have any joy? I was thinking about this this week. I was feeling a little low on my joy level. And I was thinking, where does my joy go to, man? I had joy just maybe a few hours ago. Maybe I had it yesterday. Where's my happiness? You know what? The enemy comes, and he puts a little thought in your head, and your your joy just evaporates. No more happiness. You're not smiling. You're not thinking positive thoughts. You're unhappy. Why? Because the enemy has reached in, and he's stolen it from you. Why? Because you let him do it. You let that thought fester in your mind. And he stole your joy. So the enemy comes to steal. He comes to kill you. Literally. He would love to kill you. (laughs) And to destroy. Destroy your health. Destroy your finances. Destroy your marriage. Destroy your future. Destroy your plans. He wants to destroy you at any cost. And he's willing to take whatever approach to accomplish that that he will. But look. God says, or Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So what's the antidote to always having an enemy coming after you? You start living in the full life that Jesus has given you. It says in Psalms 23, he says, he prepares a table for me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. And I picture myself in this beautiful 
green pasture, sitting down with a table that's kind of short. So I'm sitting on the ground in this lush green grass. And, and Jesus brings out all these yummy goodies and this wonderful meal. And I'm eating all the while I'm hearing these wolves, these ravenous wolves, just, just feet away from me, panting and, 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 and haunting me. But Jesus says, you know what? I want you to sit down in the presence of your enemy. I want you to sit down here while the doctor has given you a bad verdict on your health. I want you to sit here while you're looking at your bank, your checkbook, and you don't see much money in the bank. I want you to sit here and just eat up. Enjoy the presence of the Lord in the presence of your enemy. You know what that does to the enemy? It demoralizes him. It demoralizes him. The antidote to to the enemy coming and trying to make your life miserable is to eat a wonderful feast while you're just smiling at him and he can't do a single solitary thing to you. Praise God, man. You, I'm going to tell you this several times, you can be victorious just like David was victorious over Goliath. I want you to start believing it because it's not going to happen until you believe it. It's not going to happen while you're all poor me, pitiful me, I'm no good, nothing every good ever happens to me, look, so-and-so did it, and I can't, blah, blah. You're never going to be victorious with that attitude, ever. You've got to start believing, I could be victorious just like David was victorious. So let's read on now in verse 4 of 1 Samuel 17. This champion named Goliath, notice this giant had a name, and we'll get to that in just a second, He was from Gath, and he came out from the Philistine camp. So you picture this hill of of armies of Philistines, and all of a sudden this mammoth, big, huge guy steps out from among them. He's six cubits high and a span. And I'm telling you, all these people that know the old ancient measurements, they go all across the board. The majority of them say he was nine feet, nine inches. But there's some that say he was six feet nine. Others even say he was 10 feet three, mind-boggling. You say, well, Steve, there's impossible. There's nobody that's nine feet tall. Well, in the 1800s, they had people who were, they, they, they found people that were eight, over eight feet tall. So it's not a stretch to believe that at some point in history, there was a giant that was nine, over nine and a half feet tall. That's huge, enormous guy. And we find out later on that he was trained as a warrior from youth. So it wasn't some kind of, you know, super skinny basketball looking kind of guy. No, this guy was, he was big. He was scary. And apparently he was loud too. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scaled armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. This guy was already carrying another 125 pounds on him. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and, a, and a, a, a bronze javelin that was slung on his back. This dude was intimidating, intimidating. And I'll tell you, your enemies are intimidating as well. The things you worry about, you worry about them because they're intimidating. They get you down. They're impossibilities that are bigger than you are. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's 15 pounds just on the front of a spear. Can you imagine having a spear hurled at you and that just the point of it was 15 pounds? It'd pin you against the wall and knock you silly, if not kill you. And then he had a shield bearer that went out ahead of him. 
So your problems, your enemies, the things that you go to sleep thinking about and waking up about and that you think about throughout the day, they are intimidating. They're bigger than you are and they are completely impossible. If they weren't impossible, you wouldn't worry about them, right? (laughs) You would say, ah, it's no big deal because I've got this one figured out. But the fact of the matter is we all have problems that are bigger than we are and you're not alone. You're not alone. Everybody has problems. The problem is, about our problems, is we sit there and think about them so much and focus on ourselves that we literally begin to think that we're the only one with that problem. But it's not true. We all have problems. We all have our own Goliaths. And we're overwhelmed. We're intimidated by these things. And and sometimes, you know, I thought about this too. Sometimes we just wish I could wake up from this bad dream. Have you ever thought that? I wish I could just, boom, I'd wake up and say, oh, thank goodness, that was just a dream. But then you realize it's not a dream. <laughs> it's really happening, and I need some serious help with this Goliath that's facing me. Well, this, this giant to David had a name. He wasn't a faceless, nameless, kind of like, you know, you have identity theft and you wonder who on earth is he in Russia, India? Is it somebody in the United States that's trying to steal my identity? It's this nameless, faceless enemy that's out there. No, Goliath had a name. He had a personality, he had a face, and he could be identified. And you know what? It's time for you and us, you and me, we need to start naming our enemies for who they are. We need to name our enemies. They're not physical enemies, although a lot of times we think they are, we think that person, if that person would just get out of my way, move out of town, uh, my life would be better. You know what? It's not about flesh and blood. It's not about people. It's not even about the person that you're worried about. It's a spiritual enemy that you and I both have. And we need to name our enemies and call them by who they are. In some cases, It's doubt that's our enemy. In other cases, it's pure fear that's our enemy. Sometimes it's hopelessness. But we have spiritual enemies, and you need to go home and start evaluating your feelings, evaluating your thoughts, and coming to the realization and giving your enemy the name of who it is. Some of us have an enemy called self-pity. We need to write that enemy down and say, That's my enemy. It's not my circumstance. That is my enemy. We need to put a name with it. And I'll tell you, we start the the progress or start gaining progress towards victory when we finally know who we're fighting. When we finally know who we're fighting. All right? You know, let me just give you one example. If, if you're, let's say, someone's struggling in their marriage, they've already lost their spouse to divorce, and they're struggling with depression, they think their enemy is the divorce. It wasn't the divorce. It's the depression that you're in right now. We need to name our enemy. So Goliath stood, and look what Goliath does. He stands up as if he's not tall enough, probably sitting down. He stands up, and he starts shouting at the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out? And I'm not going to shout because I don't want to mess anybody's hearing up. But why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, then we'll become your subjects. Of course, Israel didn't have anybody. In fact, the average 
height, from what I understand, uh, of a Jewish person is five and a half feet, five five point five feet. All right. Here's a nine and a half, all right, four feet taller, almost twice as tall. Are they going to be able to find somebody to come fight this guy? Obviously not. So he says, if you fight and kill me, then we'll become your subjects and vice versa. And the Philistines said, this day I defy you. And every day your enemy gets up and defies you. Every day. He, he t- taunts you. He tells you you're not going to make it. He tells you, he reminds you of your impossibility and of your inabilities. He taunts them and defies them. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing this, the Philistines' words, Saul and all his Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The more you listen to your enemy, the scareder you're going to get. The more you sit there and listen to your fear, the more terrified and overwhelmed you're going to become. The Bible talks about be careful what you hear because the measure that you give to hearing what you hear is going to be the measure that comes back to you and even more on top of that. One of the things that we've got to do as Christians is stop listening to our enemies, those spiritual enemies that are trying to affect our mentality and our outlook. So they heard the Philistines' words, and they were dismayed and terrified. But look at this. The Philistine comes out, and he makes up his own rules. He said, here's my rules, guys. You send me somebody to fight, and if, if he beats me, then we'll become your servants and vice versa. The enemy is always trying to make up rules in your life. He's always trying to make up rules of the flesh, He'll tell you something like this. If you don't feel good today, that means you're going to go ahead and die from the sickness that you have. That's his rules. He just made that up. But if we play by the enemy's rules, we will never win in life. Stop playing by the rules that the enemy tries to give you of your limitations. He says if you you don't have enough money for food, that means you're not going to have enough to eat and you're not going to eat. That's the enemy's rules. God's rule says, I will supply all your needs according to my riches in glory. The enemy will come and look and say, look, you're, you're weak. You're, you're not able to work long hours, and, and you need a lot of sleep. Therefore, you're never going to be successful. And God says, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You see, don't play by the enemy's rules. And when you stop playing by his rules, you're going to start winning in life because you're going to start living by God's rules. 2 Corinthians 10, 2 through 5. I love this. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he starts talking about this, these spiritual enemies that the church has that they need to become aware of. You know what the occult means, right? The occult means to hide, to make secret, to make undiscernible. And that's what the enemy always does. He always hides himself, but he's very real in your life. He's very, he attacks you all the time. And it's up to us to bring to light, with God's help, to bring to light that which is hidden, that which is not understood. And so that's what Paul is doing here in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 10. He says, I asked then when I was, when I'm present, uh, excuse me, let me start over again. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with confidence with which I intend to be courageous against some who regard us, listen to this, 
as if we walk according to the flesh. And we're, after this series, we're going to be talking about the flesh and how to stop walking into the flesh and, and giving in to our flesh. He says, we don't walk according to the standards of this world. We don't walk according to our flesh. We don't walk according to the devil's rules. We walk according to God's rules, all right? We don't play by Satan's game. For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we live, we have to, we live, we breathe, we have flesh, we don't wage battle according to the flesh. In other words, the victory is one in the spiritual realm, not with what we feel and touch and see. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What are some weapons of our flesh? Well, uh, trying to manipulate somebody to do something and making them feel guilty so that if they don't do it, they'll feel bad about themselves. And finally, we manipulate them to do exactly what they w- we want them to do. That's a weapon of the flesh. Another one, I hear families sometimes yelling at each other. They're always yelling and raising their voice. That doesn't accomplish anything with children. That doesn't accomplish anything in a marriage. Yelling, that's a weapon of the flesh. All right? I always admire coaches who can keep their their tone really quiet, but their team does exactly what they're told to do. They've learned something other than yelling and coercion to get their players to, 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 to play well. And so, anyways, it says, not the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, not controlling, outsmarting, or yelling at people, but they have divine power for the destruction of fortresses. What is that? Permanent spiritual victory. You can win over depression permanently. You can win over that sense of being overwhelmed all the time by all the things that you need to do. You can win over that permanently. All right? You can win over fear and worry. You can win permanently. You can win permanently. So we are destroying arguments, Paul says. We're destroying arguments. What are arguments? It's theories. You know what? My aunt died of cancer, therefore I'm going to die of cancer. That's just a theory. That's not, that's not necessarily going to happen at all. Uh, other arguments like reasonings or doubts, fears, negativity, condemnation, hopelessness. That's all these things that the enemy tries to put in your mind. And if you go ahead and listen to him, you're going to sink to a very low place. God doesn't want you to listen to those thoughts anymore. Instead, he says, all these arrogant tactics that the enemy uses against the knowledge of who God is, he says, we're going to take all those thoughts captive and we're going to make them obedient unto Christ Jesus. That little negative thought that's always coming to your mind that, you know what, this is going to be a bad day, this is going to be a bad week, this, this year is going to turn out bad for you, that's negativity and it needs to be shut up in the name of Jesus. That doesn't come from God. And so we're going to take that thought and we're going to say, I'm going to bring that into captivity, into obedience of Christ. What does that mean? We take our thoughts under the command and influence of Jesus Christ from this day forward. Is that going to be easy to do? No. You're going to have to fight with God's power. You're going to have to start putting up a fight. See, the enemy's always talking down at our level. He knows what hurts us. He knows what gets us all wound up. 
All right. And he talks to us that way and he tries to discourage us. But it's time for you and I to stop listening to him. The Goliath is going to shout and yell as long as you listen to him. These Israelites sat there and listened to him for 40 days. How long and when are you going to say enough's enough? I'm not listening to those thoughts anymore. They're not true. They don't come from God and I don't need them in my life anymore. When are you going to do it? When are you going to stand up and say, I'm tired of, I'm tired of worrying. I'm sick and tired of worrying. Half my worries don't ever come true anyways. I am stopping with this. I'm going to start putting up a fight. Praise God. Well, now David, now the story switches a little bit. It says David in verse 12 was a son of this Ephraimite named Jesse, who was there from Bethlehem and Judah. And uh, Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, Jesse was already an elderly man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. They were already part of the the Israelite army. And David was the youngest one. Look at this. David. David was the youngest one. He was the smallest one. He was the shrimpiest one. He was the overlooked one. He was the shepherd. He was out in the fields. He was the nobody. But God chooses nobodies to win the victory. And I don't know about you, that encourages me because most of the time I feel like I'm a nobody, don't you? We feel like, hey, I don't, I don't amount to much compared to other people. He was the youngest, and uh, he was tending his father's sheep there in Bethlehem. Now look at this. Thinking about the, the lesser person. The person who doesn't amount to much. I love it in the Old Testament. We see time and time again. God, uh, in the the ancient times, there was the the firstborn. The firstborn son was the one that got all of the inheritance. And the rest of the brothers and sisters didn't get anything. But we find story after story in the Bible where God didn't choose the firstborn. He chose the secondborn, the lastborn, the thirdborn, the girl instead of the guy. Praise God. God chooses the small things of the world to shame the wise. And guess who that is? That's you and that's me. (laughs) God's chosen us. So if you're feeling small, insignificant, and incapable, you are perfectly positioned for victory that God has for you over your enemy. Look at this in Zechariah 4.10. Okay, so there's all these kings of Israel, kings of Israel, king, king after king after king. Then they get taken into captivity into Babylon. And after that, the kings were no more. They, they still were a king per se, but they didn't have the position of king. In fact, in this case, this Zerubbabel was actually, uh, he, had, he was from the line of kings, but he was just a governor. He didn't even have any kind of majesty, any kind of uh, royal perks, anything. He was just a governor, and it was only because he had stepped up to be the governor. He was an ordinary, average guy that had lost his kingship. But in Zechariah 4.10, it says, For who has despised the day of small beginnings? God is looking at you and saying, you might be looking and saying, God, I haven't done that much. I don't have much. I haven't accomplished much. God's saying, who has despised the day of small beginnings? For these seven rejoice to see that the plumb line is in the hand of Zerubbabel, this king who is not, not a king. All right. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. What is God looking for throughout the whole earth? 
He's looking for small people. (laughs) He's looking for the despised to show that God's victory is for those who may not amount to much of anything in this world. In Judges 6, verses 15 through 16, here's Gideon. And listen to Gideon's his, his perspective on himself. He says, pardon me, my Lord, because he's talking to an angel. He says, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? Because he's just been told, go save Israel. He says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh was a tribe. So he was, there was clans that made up tribes, and then the tribes made up Israel. He said, my clan is the weakest one, and I'm the least of my family. <laughs> and the Lord said, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites and leave none of them alive. God was saying, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give you the smallest, weakest one. I'm going to give you the victory. And then in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, the Lord is talking about Israel. He says, the Lord, or actually Moses, and he says, the Lord did not set his affections on you, Israel, or choose you because you were more of a numerous people than others. For you were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loved you and he kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh, of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You see, God chooses the small things of this world and he chose David to overcome Goliath and he's choosing you to overcome your Goliath. He's picked you. Descogio in Spanish. He picked you. All right? You need to start feeling chosen. Do you hear me? The Bible says that he's elected. He's selected. He's chosen. He picked. He's picked you. Stop acting like you're not chosen of God and start walking around like you're a chosen man or woman of God. And you have destiny on your side. You have God on your side. And you are going to do great and mighty things in your life. You are going to overcome not just one Goliath, but many Goliaths. So start believing that about yourself because God is speaking that to you. Look at this. God has endorsed you to win his battles. So stop trying to believe in yourself and start believing in God. Stop trying to believe in yourself and believe in the living God. So for 40 days, this Philistine, this Goliath, came out every morning and every evening and took his stand. Now, for any of you that spend time in the morning with the Lord, you read your Bible, you pray, you spend time just meditating on the Lord, you put on some worship music, then you go to work and you find in the afternoon that everything, anything that you studied that morning, you've lost has that ever happened to anybody? You're, you've gone from the peak to the pit in about four to five hours, and you're done. You got defeated. Why is that? Goliath comes out every morning, and he comes out every afternoon. <laughs> he comes and takes his stand against you all day long. And so you and I, we need a game plan, a daily game plan that includes God throughout the whole day. Throughout the whole day, because God is your victory. He is your victory. He's going to be, the enemy's going to be screaming into your, screaming lies into your ear at least twice a day, probably many more than that. And so we need a game plan. In Nehemiah 4, verses 16 through 18, we get this 
really cool picture drawn of what it looks like to stand up and start fighting the enemy. Do you have any fight in you? Are you going to be just steamroll the rest of your life? It's time to start standing up because you can defeat your enemy that's screaming in your ear. But look at this in Nehemiah. It says, from that day on, they were trying to build Jerusalem, build a wall for Jerusalem. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. And the officers posted themselves behind all the people in Judah, so they formed kind of this line, a protective line around the construction workers that were building this wall. And those who carried the materials, look at this, this is the picture that I like. Those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. All right? That's how we are. We might be at work, working on the computer and doing whatever we need to, but in our other hand is a spiritual weapon, a verse that we memorized this morning, a prayer that we prayed this morning, a little bit of faith that we had this morning, and we need to be exercising it throughout the day. Are you showing up to fight Because let me tell you what, there's a war going on right now, a spiritual war, and it's up to you to make up your mind, are you in the fight or are you not? For those of us that say, you know what, I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm just going to lay down my weapons and let God do whatever he's going to do. Let me tell you what, it's not what God is going to do. The enemy is going to steamroll you. Your life is going to be a mess. It's time for Christians everywhere to stand up and bear arms and begin to fight the enemy tooth and nail until the day we die. Until the day we die. We're in a spiritual battle and we need to acknowledge that we're in a spiritual battle. The reason why our country's in the mess that it is, I mean, poor kids. There's this one school now that it's gone beyond sexuality. They're, they're calling themselves cats, and they want to be. They want part of the bathroom to have a, a, a place for cats to use the bathroom. I mean, our country is going completely bonkers right now. I can't even look in the mirror and know if I'm a man or a woman. I mean, look at myself. I'm a man. Obviously, clearly, I'm a man. All right? Our country has gone completely insane. Completely insane. And now we've got groups that are propagating insanity amongst each other and completely lack of clarity and understanding of what life is or or how we need to behave, all right? We are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle. So we need to start behaving that way and say, you know what? I'm going to work with one hand, but I'm going to have my weapon in the other all day, every day. And you know what? With God's power, not with my power, because I get tired, With God's power, I'm going to be fighting the enemy tooth and nail every day, all day long. Proverbs 2, 7 says, God holds victory in store for the upright. He's looking for people who are saying, you know what? I'm not going to put up with this mess anymore. I'm going to start praying hard. I'm going to start studying hard. I'm going to start declaring victory through the word of God. And you know what? When God sees people like that, he says, I have victory in store for you here Take my victory, and you're going to start defeating Goliath after Goliath after Goliath. Don't live like a victim anymore. Don't live defeated anymore. You've got divine weapons, and God wants you to begin to use those. Well, the last point, this is just kind of kick-starting our message next Sunday. But in verse 17, going back to 1 Samuel 17, Now Jesse said to his son David, his little puny little son. (laughs) He said, take 
some roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread to your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these, these cheeses to the commanders of their unit. See how your brothers are doing and please bring back some assurance from them. And we're going to be looking at this next Sunday. You go to the doctor and you say, just give me some good news, doctor. Come on, give me some good news. All right, you go in with your annual review with your boss. You say, come on, give me some good news, a bonus, a, a raise. Just, just give me some good news. We need to stop with that already. God wants to give you victory in your mind and your heart before you see the victory. Stop looking for people to give you the victory and start looking for God to give you victory in your thoughts. So he says, please bring back some good news. There was Saul and all the men in Israel at the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. And you know what the Bible says is that David did what his dad told him to do. And we need to start doing what God has told us to do. You know, if, if, if we're going to win any victory, we've got to come under Jesus' authority in our lives. 